Welcome to the sag After Foundation's Conversations podcast. The sag After Foundation believes that contributions made to our culture by performing arts are not only valuable, but also essential. And so we provide free programming and services like this podcast to support them. If you'd like to learn more about the sag After Foundation or access the full library of our conversations or make a donation to support this podcast, please visit sagaftra.foundation. That's www.sagaftra.foundation. Also, subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SagAfterFound. Thanks, and enjoy the conversation. So you all are here to see a very special lady, and I watched several of these conversations, and I think what is particularly fun and interesting, and I'm excited for all of us in this room, is that it's not just a moderator and a guest here tonight. It's two best friends coming together to talk um, about a long history here in the business, and um, and to, I will also say, celebrate my best friend tonight because she is kicking ass, y'all. Isn't she? So we'll get into it here in a little bit, but we did meet 26 years ago uh, on a set of a little movie called The Parent Trap. And so without further ado, Lisa! Lisa and Walter! She kills me. <laughs> Hi, everybody! Thank you for coming out. I'm, I'm stunned. I really am. It's like a holiday weekend. Happy Juneteenth Eve. And I'm I'm just really um, complimented that you guys took your your night to come and hear me gab. So let's let's get into it. What do you want to know? Let's, <laughs> let's do get into it. Okay, so we're gonna um, we're gonna very we're gonna, good, very sexy secretary. I like it. Thank you. Like right it. again, doing things right. Very very yeah, right. Hundred um, percent. Okay, so it is it, it has struck me here that I know just about everything about this woman. So for me to ask these questions, it's, it's, like, it's, it's a little bizarre, but I do want to make sure because, you know, not everybody knows you as well as I do. And so we're going to start from the beginning. I want, um, like, let's start back from when you, you started your career because you started in stand-up. Well, yes and well, no. Yeah, yes and no. I mean, theater, yes theater, and no. yes. Yeah, but. I mean, so... I mean, it's when I started. So when I was in kindergarten, <laughs> I think like everybody here, we've got a story about when we fell in love with performing and, and theater and being in front of people and making them feel and making them laugh or cry. And I have that same story. Mine started with a paper mache head of Doe a Deer from The Sound of Music. And I wanted to be the star of my of my uh, kindergarten production, and then I found out I was wearing a paper mache head, and nobody could see me, but I, I rocked it. And um, and and I and you know, and I continued to do theater and musicals. I got I was working professionally on stage when I was in high school. I was doing musicals and dinner theaters, and went to college at the Catholic University of America, which has a is there a CU person here? You made it out alive. Yeah, good. 
Um, yeah, no, DC was great. And, and I loved being there and I loved doing theater in DC and it was a great place to, to start a career. I was doing children's theater, um, in a group of four people that where we, I don't know if any of you guys ever did something like this, but right. And you like get your props and you have trunks and you carry the props in and you go to three schools in one day. And I, I herniated a disc doing that. I, and we did everything, you know, I did, um, uh, summer theater at Y mills in Maryland, the state summer stock of Maryland. And, um, yeah, <laughs> Maryland or summer stock. All right. Um, so far, we're one for one here. Yeah, exactly. I know nothing. Um, my best, one of my best friends, so when I was at CU, I wasn't even going to go into the BFA program because in those years, my mother was a single mom. We grew up really struggling financially. She was the one that taught me in high school, learn to type so you can always do a job. And, you know, learning to type comes in handy when you need it for like typing scripts and stuff later on. But then I was not interested in doing a job where I would have to type. I waited tables instead, like a, like a real actress. Um, <laughs> but uh, there were 18 of us. I wound up auditioning for the BFA program when I was at Catholic after two years. Coming back from spring break, still hungover um, with all of my friends. In fact, oh my God, you might not know this part. Um, I went to spring break on that trip with the actor John Slattery. You know John, right? From Mad Men and every other thing in the world. Uh-huh. He wasn't the only one. There were like five of us in the car, but we did make out in the back seat for part of the, <laughs> part of the way down there. I had fun. Um, but when on the way back up, people were saying, well, are you going to audition for the BFA program? And I was like, nah, I'm not going to do that. Then you, have to, then you had to really commit, I'm going to be an actor. I'm not going to be a teacher actor and I'm not going to be a something else and do, you know, community theater on the side. I'm going to be an actor. This is a conservatory program. I'm going to do the Greeks. I'm going to do Shakespeare. I'm going to do Moliere. I am going to act. And this is my choice. And so like any other, you know, deep thinking actor, hungover on a trip back from Florida, I went... Well, I know this monologue from this thing I did. The rose tattoo. I'll do that. Sure. It's a part for a 50-year-old woman, and I'm 19. But all right. I'm going to do it. She's Italian. I got it. And I did it, and I got into the program. And it was a, it was a really hard program to get into. There was 18 of us in this program. 90 people auditioned in, a, in already a prestigious drama department. So I was, like, super proud of myself, and my mother cried. And um, I... Uh, not out of pride. She was... <laughs> scared for me I was going to be an actor um, but but almost uh, right afterwards I one of my friends from the BFA program who was also a playwright Bernie DeLeo um, he was already getting it was like one year after getting out of school I was waiting tables at a, a French restaurant on Capitol Hill and I got a phone call from him because he was writing a play to celebrate the Susquentennial the whatever 300th anniversary of the state of Maryland at this Summerstock Theater. And the part of the, the lead part was a twin sister <laughs> themes, themes, um, a twin sister who was separated at birth. And one was a Indian maiden and the other one was like a Puritan 
and and they were raised separately but then there was it was a farce so there was being stuffed into burlap bags and slung over people's shoulders and getting carried up into haylofts and coming back as a the different character the twin it was nuts the person they had playing the lead had a nervous breakdown i think the part was why and <laughs> He called me and said, you're the quickest study I know. You have to save me. This is my first play ever produced for this summer stock. You got to come and do this part. So I, I drove there. It was about three and a half hours from where I lived in D.C. over the Bay Bridge to this summer stock theater. And we, that was the day before opening. They pushed back rehearsal. They, we had one extra day of rehearsal. We pushed back and opened Wednesday instead of Tuesday. I rehearsed about 20 out of 24 hours. And I, I would say there was a, a X in the back where I would go and stand like this and they would put on a buckskin or a Puritan outfit and lace me up. And I'd say, what's my mark? What's my cue? What's my first line? And they would shove me to my mark, somebody whispering the cue to me and then shove me onto the stage. And, and then I would do the scene and then come out, go to the X and go, what's next? And that's how I did it for about the first four days. And I only went up once, so I'm very proud of myself. That I... And in fact, one of the times that I was in the burlap bag, <laughs> laying on the stage, they couldn't get the opening of it. They couldn't untie the rope. And so I was in there, not knowing what the hell I'm doing anyway, and now I'm stuck in a burlap sack. And I think I improv the line, dust thou hath a shears. <laughs> anyway, it was, it was headline news in this little town. <laughs> I was on the headline of this paper, on the front page, DC actress saves town or something like that. <laughs> because the entire economy of this little town of Y Mills, Maryland, it rested on whether or not the first show would make money so that they could keep producing shows for the rest of the summer. The next show that they did was a musical and I hadn't done one in a while. And they said, go audition. And again, just like doing the BFA, I was like, I'm not planning on auditioning. And then everybody else got on stage after a show one night and went, all right, I'll go do it. I was saying, is it a crime for bells are ringing? Is it a crime to start each day with a laugh and a smile and a song? So I did that. And then I went to first day of rehearsals in D.C., not knowing what I was playing. And they, and they gave everybody a, a script. And I looked at it and I said, I've got 11 songs. I, th I think I'm the lead. So why was Judy Garland in Babes in Arms having no... Yeah. So anyway, that was, that was like the, the theater launch was... Because um, that's all I ever thought I would do. I thought I would be an actress in a repertory company. I went and did classes at the arena stage in D.C. Um, in the summer. I did scenes from uh, Streetcar. And right when I got done, a theater in D.C. was producing, was doing Streetcar. And I walked on stage, and I'll never forget this. Everybody was auditioning. I was one of the last people to go on for, for Stella. And, um, and I started cleaning up the stage. As I was, before I started doing the lines, I was just picking up the stage, picking up my apartment. And then uh, that's how I got the job immediately, is what they told me afterwards. And... Um, but that's what I thought I would do my whole life is be an actress in a repertory company. I never thought I would come out here, do TV, do movies. I'd never. My, my father worked for NASA. He was a physicist. My mother was a teacher. I never saw any of this coming. I never saw stand-up coming. 
I went to New York to be an actress. I did exactly one off-Broadway play and got knocked up. And, and so I was pregnant with my son about a year out of college and had him in 18 months. When he was about 18 months old, I started doing stand-up. So that's how stand-up started. <laughs> Wait, how long have I been talking? <laughs> no. So I'm used to, when I have a mic in my hand, I could go an hour. Um, well, that's actually my next question is when did the... Perfectly planned. Exactly. When did the switch happen where you s decided or thought, oh, hey, wait, I, I can actually do this for a living. I can take this even further than, than the, the theater repertoire. You mean the acting part of it? It was, it was an accident. Um, I, I, truthfully, when I got to New York, I would stop myself from auditioning. I would always say, you know, think to myself, uh, I'm, when I lose 10 pounds, they're going to say no. First of all, it was the 80s. I wasn't necessarily wrong. Yeah? I mean, they wanted bodies like this, not bodies like this. Um, unless I was maybe, you know, if I was 20 years older and really curvy, then I could put on an apron and a babushka and, you know, make a pot roast. But they didn't want ethnic. They didn't want curvy. And I was, you know, I'm, I'm, I, didn't, I didn't want the rejection. Because I felt great about myself as an actor as long as I was showing up and showing out and being big, right? That big personality. But if I had to audition and be real, I just was like, they're going to say no. And I'm going to know it's because I'm too fat. And I don't want to feel like that because I was the fat kid growing up. That was where the basis of my, my pain was. So I just was afraid. And after I had a baby... I said, well, I had a human being. I'm going to get on a stage. And I had friends that were doing stand-up because it was the boom. It was the stand-up boom. I came up on stages with Ray Romano and, and Adam Sandler and all of these you know, people that you know now. Sarah Silverman came a few years after me, but this was the real height of the 80s comedy boom. And right around that time, when I was still have, nursing a baby, Roseanne Barr got a show, and Tim Allen got a show, and Brett Butler got a show, and Ray got a show. Actually, he was a year after me. I take that back. But people were getting shows, and it was never a plan in my head, I'm going to do this until I get a show. Never. I was headlining all over the country, making good money for the late 80s. I was making 75 grand a year, 90 grand a year. I was opening for a guy who was a big soap opera star, Walt Willie. He had a big female fan base. He's still on the show. He's Jackson Montgomery, if anybody knows All My Children, that show. And he had all these women that would come out to see him, and he wanted to do stand-up, so I was his opening act. I would do like an hour, an hour and a half, and then he'd come out and do 15 minutes and sing some songs, and that was it. <laughs> and I'd be his road manager and pack like 60 grand in a bra, 20 in that side. That was my money. And, and we'd go to the next town. But I, I earned enough to make a house. I never thought, at that point, I was like, this is what I do. I'm a comic. You know, people don't really think that when they think of me and my career. But that's what I did. I was really successful, national headlining comic. And then I did some showcases. And they said, how about you come out here and star in a TV show? And I went, all right. <laughs> and, and so I went out to... I came out here in 94, and it was, 
It wasn't a plan. That's the interesting thing. I didn't say, and there are people now who do improv and they go, well, I'm going to do stand-up so people can see my talent and then I'll get cast and stuff. And it's not that it's not viable if any of you are doing that. I'm not shitting on it. But I think what was so important to me at that time was I was a working mother. I had a baby. I was in a long-term relationship. I Then I had a second child. I had a daughter four years later. I was doing the plate spinning act of, of having it all that women were supposed to do in those years, that they, they sold all of us a bill of goods that you can have it all. As I used to say in my act, raise a family, find a cure for cancer, have a flat stomach. And, and obviously we couldn't do it all and we were all miserable and bitches all the time. But that was, it was stuff in my act that I had to say. I was doing pro-choice material in like, you know, Indiana and the Deep South. There was stuff I had to say. So that's why I was doing it because I... I didn't think there, there weren't any other women there. I was working blue. Female comics were not allowed to work blue then. I would go into clubs and the owner would say, yeah, you killed with Walt, but we don't like women working blue here, so don't work blue. And I'd go, good luck getting a headliner and turn around and walk out, dropping F-bombs, talking about sex, talking about, you know, saying the word my vagina. <laughs> like, don't say that. You know, that's chick material. And you think about what people do now in stand-up the, the fact that this was just, how long ago was it? 30 years? <coughs> years. Years ago. <laughs> that it, was a, it was a completely different time. There were maybe 30 female comics working in the entire country. And probably half were gay. Because I, also, I was married and had children. Because men weren't busy trying to help their wives raise babies while they were out being stand-up comics just didn't happen. So the voice that I had as a working mother with children was pretty unique in those days. It just wasn't heard, which is leads me to that's why I was offered a show because I was doing material about being a working mother, trying to stay attractive, trying to keep my relationship going and happy, you know, have my kids not hate me and and be proud of what I did for a living. So it was sort of my plan when I did the first show. I want my show to be like Roseanne's but I want my character to care about what she does for a living because that was the generation I grew up with, that it wasn't a question of what high-powered job you were going to have or it wasn't a question of whether you're going to work or not. It was a question of like what incredibly important job you're going to have. So that's why I created TV shows that reflected that. And, uh, and that's how that happened. <laughs> well, and um, y- this brings up a really great point that you've – want to make sure everybody knows Lisa's been a comic she's been a theater a trained actress film television a writer a producer an executive producer a mother um a twice divorced wife (laughs) and now um and now a union representative (laughs) it's really important to me thank you yeah, so along the way, um, when you know, when you, and you're right, there's wasn't always the opportunities for women as you went along. No. So how did you recognize them? How did you recognize the opportunities that you could take or that you could make? Or you know what this? I mean, this goes back to who I was when I was a kid, growing up. My sister and I were a year and a half apart. We had next door neighbors, also two girl sisters that were a year and a half apart. So one was my age and one was my sister age, sister's age. 
the four of us ran around doing crazy shit. We would do like, we would, the four of us decide we were going to do an, a muscular dystrophy gar- carnival and create rides in the backyard and sell tickets in the neighborhood. And we did. Nobody was stopping us. We're going to build a clubhouse. And we did. It was three stories tall. And it, and it, there were rats, but that neighborhood made us take it down. But we would decide to do these things. We would put on shows and we had a newsletter, a feminist newsletter in the 70s. So, you know, we would write letters to the Washington Post. We were badass little girls. And it never occurred to me that I couldn't. It never occurred to me that there were limits, that there were rules, that there were things I shouldn't try to do. So all the things I did, I just did. You ask permission, uh, you ask uh, forgiveness later. You just do it. You know, if you feel like there's something that you want to do, which, I mean, you guys have that opportunity now because you can create content here, right? Then it was just a question of, I remember telling somebody, this is when I still lived in Jersey, and they were complaining that there, were no, there was nothing to audition for. There was no work. And they, they, they couldn't go out and they couldn't try for anything. And I said, I remember walking up and down my bedroom in my house in, in Summit, New Jersey, saying, what are you waiting for? Write something. There's nothing for you to, to go out and audition. Why are you waiting for somebody else to give you permission to be an actor? Write it. Do it. That's the, that's the ABC. Always be creating, right? So I think that um, the opportunity part, I will tell you, and this is fact, I was in two back-to-back TV shows. I had a really great deal. They were, I was new. I was fresh. I was a comic, but I was also... In those days, I had a cute figure. I, you know, the guys who greenlight stuff liked that. They they thought I was sexy, so they were selling a funny female character, but it was also somebody that they thought was attractive. Which again, in those days, was groundbreaking. That you weren't the wife of like all the people that you saw on the CBS shows. That I was the center of the show. Here's the thing: I had all these ideas of what I knew was truth about my my characters and who I was representing out there in the country. And because I'd been playing in front of them for almost 10 years, I was out in America knowing what their lives were and what made them laugh and what my life was. And they would say stuff to me like, wouldn't it be great if your, your family, right, had like a nanny, but he was like a dude, like a hot dude nanny. And I was like, America doesn't have nannies. America gets on the bus at six in the morning and brings their kids to daycare and drops them off and then they trudge to work and then they go pick them up. And if they did have a nanny, it wouldn't be a hot dude. And turns out uh, the industry did not like a woman with that many opinions. And so even though I had two shows back to back, the second one was that broke records for the biggest deal ever made for an unknown um, my ABC deal and a really good lawyer. Um, but it was like a million bucks, pay or play. It was a big deal in those days. And um, we had numbers that beat Roseanne's. My show followed hers on Tuesday night. And we de- we were incredible. We, for a show that wasn't ER or Friends, which was, I think they were getting 33% of the audience. We were getting between an, like a 17 and a 23 share. 
happened to be the first year that they were that numbers were being pulled from network television to my direct competitor on HBO was a little show called The Sopranos. So they didn't really realize what was going on in terms of like high budget as what's it called high budget SVOD. Yeah. So it's stuff like that. But we were doing killer numbers. We were beating our competition in our time slot every single week. We were killing it. And the show got canceled. After one year, new president of the network. Right? So the president that was there went away, went somewhere else. And this is how I found out that there might be problems. I was at an event in the winter. Uh, it was a, um, what do they call those? A TCA event. But the winter one. And so the, the president that was leaving, Ted Harbert, he was going out and he said to me, comes up and he finds me and goes, you'll land on your feet. I was like, what, what, what's happening? <laughs> I mean, I didn't know. I didn't know when a new president came into a network, they liked to clean house and bring the stuff they had from NBC onto the network and get rid of everything that was existing. I had no idea. I was like, look at our numbers. Um, so I guess that goes to say I... I I took opportunities when they were there and when they weren't there. And sometimes it bit me in the ass in those days. I think if I can go from my experience and what's happening with Abbott Elementary, thank you, and how this same network is listening to this young, incredibly talented woman of color, maybe things are changing a little bit. Also, more women in executive uh, spots doesn't hurt. Yeah. Your hair. Yeah. How do you, first of all, Lisa's one of the smartest people I know. And I realize I also forgot among her list of accomplishments, I forgot author as well. Oh, so yeah. I want to call right. that I out. I forgot it too. Uh, <laughs> um, I did that. Being one of the, so incredibly smart and having these opinions Thank and being you. a woman, how do you navigate this? And especially when you're, like, let's say on a show like Abbott. Now, hmm. yes, I'm trying. I'm trying not to censor here, but uh, you have an incredible boss, so it's a little bit of a of a different situation. Yeah. You have an incredible boss I who sure listens, do. and and you are, you're in a collaborative environment. But let's say, let's talk about that. But let's also talk about one that maybe you're not in such a collaborative environment. How do you navigate your opinions, your creativity, your smarts when you know, and especially with your experience on the produce produ, producerial side yeah. and the writer side? Like, how do you navigate that when you have ideas and Let's talk about when you are listened to and let's talk about when you're not listened to. Okay, so that's a really great, great question. And I will say that when I came into my first gig in this town and I realized the, the, the privilege of this when I say it was starring in my own show. I never had to find a red light on a camera. I never had to make sure I, I was in good lighting. They made sure. I didn't know any other way to be on TV. In fact, the first time after the starring in those shows when I was in someone else's house and on, in, on their set, somebody was like, well, you get, wait for the camera to swing over. And I was like, oh, oh. I, it, and it wasn't like, oh my God, I'm not the star. It wasn't that. It was I did not have the skill set. I didn't know I have to wait for to see the red light and know the camera's on me, right? So I had to learn a couple of things, how to be 
how to be smart about, you know, where I was in this world. But I love people and I love actors. And I have been incredibly fortunate in that the movies that I've done and the shows that I've done, I've almost always worked with people that were lovely. Every once in a while, you'll get somebody where, okay, I'm being a little too funny and the star doesn't like it. And you get that too. You do. And then if you're smart enough, if you're the child of an alcoholic, then you, you're very in tuned to how people feel. And so you're like, okay, I see what's going on here. I'll dial it back or whatever. Or you decide not to and run all over them and know you're never going to be invited back. But, but what was interesting is because I was on the producer side on my shows and I heard what executives said, it was both a wonderful training thing and a horrific training ground as an actor to hear what people said. Because here's something you should know. Sometimes the reasons for you getting a job or not getting a job has to do with maybe how the audition went, maybe how tall you are next to your co-star, maybe for a reason. Sometimes it is not. It is just not. It has nothing to do with what you delivered, who you look like, what you are. Sometimes it's, God, she just reminds me of my ex-wife. Or I feel like we've seen her so much. Because that's like a bad thing. You know, sometimes there is absolutely no reason why you don't get a job, which should be incredibly freeing. Just do what you do. Bring that to the party. And then you book the job or you don't, but always win the room. You told me that. You told me that. Always just win the room. When I was busy auditioning and auditioning and not getting cast, just win the room. And so, you know, that's, that was part of the stuff I learned as a producer that, kind of didn't matter when you're out there in the world to to uh to sort of be free because you don't have any there's no there was no rhyme or reason to why you could get a job or not get a job but I, um wait go back what was the other part of that question i went down i got to follow the breadcrumbs back <laughs> how how to how Genius. to navigate being opinionated and having ideas yes in collaborative Ye- and non-collaborative yes <laughs> So one of the things you learn when you're listening to producers and you're on the producer side of the room is what they respond to or not. Everybody's different. I've been on sets where as a guest artist, I know that come prepared. You might, everybody else in the cast might be three of them are late. They're not necessarily don't know their lines. As a guest, you have to know your lines. You have to know your lines. You have to hit your mark. You have to deliver. I remember having this conversation with you. You were getting ready to start auditioning for musicals and I, and I had it with you one time my friend Hillary, you deliver every line that they write for you the way you know the writer intended. Here's a joke. It's in a joke rhythm. It sucks. It's a terrible joke. But I know that they think this is a joke and I'm going to deliver it like a joke because they believe it's a joke. (laughs) What I'm also going to do as I remove my judgment is I'm going to give them three things in the course of my audition that they don't expect, whether it's a physical beat or just going... (laughs) and turning around, whatever it is, I'm going to sling my purse over my shoulder and walk out halfway through the scene and I have to come back. You have to drag me back with your line to deliver the rest. That's how I got Abbott. I, halfway through her talking to me, I put my purse on and left the scene and then came back and was like, what? <laughs> and they were like, that's how we knew. When you were like, done, you were done, you left. And, uh, and Elaine auditioned with me. Elaine was my reader. Yeah. <laughs> Elaine was my reader. She's my reader on a lot of things, by the way, and also the best coach you could ever meet in your life. Really, really good at, at coaching. 
Um, but I, so I think what you do is that you, it's not about like trying to toe the line and do stuff that you shouldn't be doing. It's about knowing what this particular house likes. Do they like if you come in with ideas and like, hey, is it okay if I try this? Is it, is it a director that's okay with hearing that? And some, a group of writers that like it. And then they get excited and they like start giving you lines. Because if you surprise them in an audition with stuff they're not expecting, with a line here or a movement there, and you, the writers go, because they're watching your tape, right? They go, oh, this is going to be a fun person to write for. They come up with their own funny. I don't have to work so hard. They're giving me everything I need, but they're also giving me more. And so that's when you kind of break the rules. You, t- you bend the rules a little bit. I am going to jump in here, though. Go, jump. Because... If you don't, you'll never talk. (laughs) That is very true. Uh, It has to be authentic at the same time. Because everything that you're talking about, your mannerisms and what you just demonstrated there, is 100% you. So you can't just improv stuff and do stuff just because you think it's going to be interesting. Yeah, no, you can't like leap into, why I said to him, I said, take it on the shoe leather. (laughs) You see, I mean, you can't, it's got to be, it's got to be authentic to you in the scene and the truth of the scene the playing of those moments and, and also the project, you know, the tonally part of it. One of the many, many things I love about you is that you are always unapologetically you. Thank you. But what? No, there's no, I'm building, but I was... We usually cry when we're together, and this is one of these moments I'm trying to choke back tears. I'm going to have tissue. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Thank you. I don't need it right now. Okay. I'll wait. Um, You are um, unapologetically you. And, um, well, now I forgot what I was going to ask you. I'm sorry. I'll wait. How are you guys doing? Oh. What? Okay. So... Um, that means yeah. sometimes, like you said in the 80s, uh, you were very, or when you were doing your, your stand-up and, and coming into a sitcom, you were very in vogue when executives thought you were sexy and whatnot. And then there's times, and then you do movies and you're doing the parent trap and stuff. And then there's times when maybe you're not so in vogue and you're not. You mean, are you talking about when I got old? Is that what you're trying nope. to avoid nope, saying? Nope, nope, nope. I'm talking about the ebbs. Post 40, Lisa. I'm talking about the ebbs and flows of any business. Because As, oh, all the yeah. way through it, you have been unapologetically you. That's true. So my question is, how do you, how do you ride, ride the ebbs and flows? Well, again, it goes back to ABC, always be creating. So if I'm doing TV shows and then they go, okay, she's, she's still sexy, but... I, I mean, I made it through my 40s still riding that she's still hot, right? But about the end of that... I'm going to say you're still riding hot. Hey. <laughs> yeah, but that's what girls say to each other. It's like drunk ladies' room talk. No, you're hot. No, you no, are. You. you are. Oh, my God, I love your shoes. I love you. Um, I... Uh, if I wasn't getting booked on TV, and there, I, I had four kids I was financially responsible for, and one of the dads was lovely, and, um, you know, turns out we just had too much in comedy, also like men. These are the jokes, people. Um, and, the, 
And the other one, not so lovely. Um, but I was, I had to work. So if I wasn't going to book a TV job and movies were great for a time there, I was, I did, you know, but sort of back to back, it was Parent Trap and then it was Bruce Almighty, the Shall We Dance, War of the Worlds. And I killers. Di- killers. I, I dyed my hair white blonde or they dyed it for Shall We Dance, which is a, a ballroom dance movie with Richard Gere and J-Lo. I don't know if you guys saw it. It's brilliant. You should watch it. Um, but they dyed my hair white blonde, like blonder than you, and uh, which is tough on your hair. Uh, but it kept, it was such a character look that I kept getting cast with this white blonde hair. I mean, it was like over and over. Steven Spielberg loved it for War of the Worlds. In fact, when I came to shoot that movie, my hair, had st- I started to try to get it back to like a normal kind of highlighted blonde. And he was like, no, 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 the porn blonde. I want the porn blonde. <laughs> So I had to dye it again. It's very, it's very rough, but it's also rough. And I did the the X's. I was doing a like recurring on the X's, and because they love the character, and with that hair and what they wrote, you know, I could do this character here, this one. And I I kept saying that's great. I that character is fun, but I'm tired of getting the calls for you know the woman on every procedural who sticks her head out of the trailer going, I ain't kill him, but I ain't sorry he's dead. You know. <laughs> I'm like, we all, we get it. I can do it in my sleep. And I, I but I, I love the maternal stuff that I did in The Parent Trap. And I wanted to be a boss. I wanted to be smart. I'm like, I know what my IQ is. I would like my hair to reflect that. So I, my, so Tracy Cunningham, my colorist, was like, you're a redhead. You're going to go Emma Stone red. <coughs> who else told you you, you were told a redhead? You okay, told me you were the one you. who told me. You told me. Uh. And and so I, I you know by the time that happened some other stuff started to you know go on I was you know for a while I produced unscripted I I created a show called um, what the hell was the name of it Dance Your Ass Off Thank oh. you Thank you, you people who know my career Gonzo Gonzo Girls It was a a chick. Um, like stunt show and they were real stunt women they did crazy funny stuff like um like uh what's Johnny Knoxville what's that. Jackass. It was like jackass, but nobody stuck anything in their butt. Um, but like I did that, but I did Dance Your Ass Off, which was an oxygen show. And that came about because they asked me to put on weight for Shall We Dance, like as much weight as I could. And it was really hard because I was dancing 10 hours a day. And the, the director would keep saying, where's the chocolate, darling? You need to get fat like Tony Collette did in Muriel. You need, to go, you need to get big. And I was like, I cannot eat when we're dancing. I will puke on Tucci. I cannot... I can't shove food in my face nonstop. But I was eating probably 15, 20,000 calories a day and was having a hard time gaining weight. So when it was over, and I was heavier than I normally am, and I had this cheating husband that was running around with like a 19-year-old, and uh, hair by that time was like an inch puffball of white fluff from the, uh, my hair burned off from the dyeing it white. I was in a low state, you could say. And the only thing that got me out of bed for about six months was dance class three times a week. I'd always wanted to be a dancer when I was little. I wanted to dance like you did. But when I tried to go to dance class, I was the chubby kid. I was the fat kid in school. And we had one dance teacher in all of Silver Spring, Maryland, this Russian lady. And she said, looked at my sister who was beanpole thin and looked at me and she said about my sister, this one can dance. This one too fat. Wouldn't let me dance. So I'm like, I'm making a TV show because uh, women love to dance. Why do we have all these weight loss shows where people get screamed at? 
And the second that they stop doing the show, it's like somebody pulled a, a ripcord on a raft and everybody gains the weight. Do something you love. Keep moving and you'll be healthy. You don't have to be skinny. That shouldn't be the goal anyway. should be healthy and happy. So I created Dance Your Ass Off and um, huge hit. Biggest show Oxygen had in, uh, in their, the history of the network and had that for two years until they decided that they, oh, thank you. Thank you. They decided that they wanted to get the Kardashian audience and then they shit-canned my show and bought Paris Hilton. But they forgot to ask America if they cared anymore about Paris Hilton. They did not. Yeah, they're um, lost. Yeah, exactly. But anyway, that ends. And at the same time, I'm writing a book called The Best Thing About My Ass is That It's Behind Me. <laughs> and I don't have to look at it all the time. At which point my mother said, why does everything you do have to have ass in it? Why? <laughs> it's like, watch your mouth. Um, but it was about women and self-esteem and the crazy stuff we go through hating on ourselves. I wanted to call the book Self-Loathing is for Losers, but my um, publicist didn't get the joke. Um, pu publisher, not publicist. Um, so anyway, the, the, out of all of this, what I'm, I'm trying to say is that I just did the next thing. I created the next thing. I didn't wait for somebody to tell me I could or I couldn't. I had an idea and I went for it. And believe me, I had managers that were like, your slate is 37 projects long. Pick two. And I had a really hard time doing that. But like you and I wrote a script together for a movie where we came up with the idea of it on the set of The Parent Trap and then wrote it for the next, what, what year is it? 26 years still writing it. That's not true. We've, we, we wrote it. We wrote, we absolutely wrote it. And we've rewritten it. We've rewritten several times. <laughs> we will rewrite it again. Eventually, we will do it. We'll set up a GoFundMe. Yes, we will. It's actually a plan. Okay, Who's well. has got five bucks. Um, so let's talk about the flow that's happening right now, a.k.a. Abbott Elementary. Oh. And Miss Melissa, how did you discover her? How, what? I don't know. I thought you were you were going into how dare you? <laughs> I, I didn't know what was coming. How did you discover her? And how you know at, when you're on a TV show and you're doing multiple episodes after episodes after episodes, you don't know what's what's coming down the line for your character, and so you're you're both creating as well as honoring what's been established and it's kind of a lot to juggle yeah. um and melissa has really we we've really gotten to see a lot of different colors with her already which speaks to the brilliance of quinta of course yeah. the brilliance the of you oh, thank you the brilliance of the chemistry of everyone but so let's talk about your process with melissa well i Honestly, the, f the fact, we were talking about this at an FYC event just this week. The fact that you're on a hit show gives you such freedom to explore. By season two, you're going, okay, people like us. Because, you know, half hour pro shows are all about people want to invite you into their house every week. Like, come, you're having dinner with me and my kids and my family and my Aunt Yola. And, you know, you're... you're oh, good old Yola. You know, um, you've got to pluck those chin hairs. Um, <laughs> but people have to like you and want to hang out with you and then once that is there and it's you you have the freedom of that you can really have have a good time with your character I always knew exactly who she was I mean almost from the first time that you read with me 
and I did her. I think my my accent probably got better because I don't I don't talk like Melissa. I can if I want to. I can go into you know Melissa. You know, it's a little bit of Maryland. It's a little bit of the O's that we had growing up. If you're from there, but then you like mush your mouth to the front, and it's you know Philadelphia is very specific. And they've told me the people from there that I am. I, that they accept me, embrace me, which is the biggest compliment I can get because they don't they don't play. They're Philadelphians are me. Yeah, somebody's attesting. They're they will not tell a lie to save your feelings. So I felt very good about that. The accent got better, but who she was was so much based on on people in my family. Yes, people in you know my mother and her family. They are Sicilian. I brought a lot of their terminology to this character because they're writers who are brilliant and they're diverse and they are young and, and so gung-ho and love writing for all of us. But they didn't know Sicilian lingo, but I do. So during a scene, that's one of the things of like kind of bending the rules a little bit. Instead of saying, oh, my cousin's got a hoagie shop, I'd be like, yeah, my, my, my cousin, what did I name him? My cousin Dami. My cousin Dami's got a hoagie shop. And, you know, instead of calling somebody whatever name they'd have, I'd call him a jabroni. Are you kidding with this jabroni? And they would be like, yeah, keep it in. Because it was adding to who they knew the character to be, too. It wasn't changing it. It was just adding. And then they started, I think they started looking up words. And <laughs> they had a couple that I'd never heard of. I'm like, I've never heard of this. What does this mean? Um, but finding her, to me had to do with a couple of things that were a little methody, if you'll forgive the term. Some of it was really simple based on her wardrobe. I insisted on wearing high heel Doc Martens because Melissa's an ass kicker and she has to be ready to run. So she's got rubber soles on her shoes, but heels because she likes to look nice. And that informed, along with the kind of pants I was wearing, the kind of, you know, leather jackets. Sorry, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change my position real quick, but don't get on me camera-wise that way. I, I started sitting like a guy. I started sitting, leaning forward, legs open, very kind of much more masculine than I would sit ever, even as me. You know, nor, nor if we're hanging out at home, I might have my legs thrown over a chair or I'm sitting back in the bark lounger, right? people who know me. But I don't, I don't usually sit legs crossed like that, you know, like a dude. Melissa does. Melissa is more, I don't want to say masculine because that's not how we do it anymore, is it? She's just... More tomboy? She's, she's tough. She's just a little tough girl. And... um which makes it really fun to play with because when she, when Melissa does kind of let the guard down and show her vulnerable self, not usually not to the other teachers, unless it's Barbara, unless it's Cheryl Lee Ralph. It's absolutely one of my, my favorite, don't get jealous, acting relationships I've ever had. Um, but but she she can be who she is around Barbara, but around the other teachers, she can't. Weirdly, from a character who at the beginning hated and didn't trust any of the camera crew, which was something that we talked about a lot with the writers. I mean, they did it a little bit, and then I just kept pushing it. And like more and more, I'm like, I'm not looking at that one. 
you know, because he did something last week and I'm like, I'm not looking at him. And then we wouldn't even have it in the script. I would just throw him a dirty look. And then they would add it in. And then the next week it would be something where I like actually go after him. There was one scene that they put in that I hold a fork up. Well, they didn't put it. I put the fork part. But they were like, you point at him and you're like, that's why I never trusted any of yous. And I, by the time I got it, I had a fork and I was kind of threatening. And then one time they're like, go, go after the camera. And I'm like, really? And they were like, yeah. And I went. <laughs> they sh- they should have been more specific. <laughs> I went and I like, and I slapped the camera down and I cut my finger open pretty bad. But um, they were more, they, nobody cared. They were looking at the camera. They were like, is the camera okay? <laughs> um, bleeding but um every every week there's more discovery with who she is because they start writing stuff i didn't know i had a sister that i had beef with until it was in the script now that's a big part of her character that audiences love right i didn't know in the first year whether or not i had kids and kids to me to lisa is such an intrinsic part of who i am being a mother is so important that I couldn't imagine playing a character that didn't have kids. But it wasn't ever a part of a storyline yet. So I had to figure out, did she try to have kids and not? Was that part of the reason she divorced her husband? Was that something that she kind of waited too late to do and then the ship sailed? And is that part of the reason why she is so protective of these children? Because they're her children? And so all of that starts to inform the character and, and make the character grow which is why I think people are seeing such a, such, so much more from Melissa this season. There's just more, more chance to do it. What? Thank you. And talk, talk a little bit more about finding particularly the vulnerability in Melissa because, yeah. you know, people think about comedy, think, they think about making people laugh. Yeah. But really it's about what's underneath it. Yeah, I, well, you know, I found myself, Cheryl had this moment, I'm going to speak about her for one minute, she had this moment on the pi- right after the pilot, like maybe in shooting the first episode or two, where she talked about this the other night, so I'm not telling tales, I'm Sicilian, I'm not telling anybody's business. She talks about it, and she said that she was trying to figure out what was she was supposed to be doing with her character, and that Randall Einhorn, who directs most of our episodes, and Quinta came up to her, and Randall said, you, you're brilliant, you do all these things, you do so much, you're a, a singer and a Broadway actress, and you are, you're, you're, interesting and capable and you do everything there is to do so don't do anything and she said what okay and it made me think because I was sitting right there it made me think I know my character thinks she's funny she like tells a joke and they're bad jokes and then I do a I this I've never done this in any other character but I do it I do a I do a De Niro face I, I purposefully, it was in the audition I did it too. <laughs> Pipsqueak. And, I, and I, that's strictly Melissa. I've never done that for any other character because it is a, hey, aren't I funny? You know? <laughs> I don't even do it on stage as a comic, but Melissa does it. And then I thought, oh, am I doing that? And then I was like, no, because her toughness is bred from her, from her neighborhood. And that toughness, I find myself doing it, you see, as I'm talking about her. I, that toughness is who she needs to be 
even in front of her ex-husband, maybe, when she first gets on the phone with them. That was a, a scene that I played in season one where I had to talk to the ex-husband because I'm thinking about dating somebody. And um, there were some things that I had to get cut out of that episode that broke my heart. We'll do it again. We'll do another one. But the the tenderness that she exhibits when she is not afraid of people finding her out or with the few people that she can do. And there was one instance with a... Um, She's talking about, it's the art teacher episode. I don't know if you guys saw it. She's This art teacher comes in and she rips up all of these Peter Rabbit books that Melissa bought with her own money to make a, an art installation and Melissa loses it and is violent. Like she's going to beat her up. I kept saying to Quinta, is ABC okay with all this? This is very violent. She was like, no, they like it. <laughs> so I, 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 it was really violent. But what you see, and that, so that the audience understands, is Melissa dro- talking, doing her talking head that we call the straight to camera, and going into her drawer and pulling out the first paper plate bunny that she ever had her class do, and said, "This is the first project I ever did," and and I'm kind of fixing it. And I knew that I was showing to our audience a Melissa they hadn't seen yet. That was the first time that they saw a softness and a smile and a softer voice. And I, I knew the effect it was going to have. I'm an actor. But, but it was, I was very gratified that being my authentic self and being proud of this white teacher who comes into the school afraid that nobody will like her, afraid that, that she'll get pushback, and being tough, because I have to be, because I'm taking care of my students and I have to be this, this tough teacher for everybody. But that she was vulnerable in that moment where she was was proud of the plate and proud of herself for doing something that her students loved. And um, and people seemed to like it. I got a really good response from about that beat. Sometimes, I will say, it is a personal um, challenge for Lisa as a, as a human being to be soft. And I remember I had an audition, not soft, not soft in emotion, soft. I grew up with a loud family. We were loud all the time. We were, you know, I, at school, because I was the fat kid, I learned that if I was funny and I made the joke first, I, I was in charge. I was in charge of it. I couldn't, you couldn't hurt me with a joke about being fat because I made it first. So I was loud and I was funny. And I would tell myself every day before I went to school, just don't top the boys. Don't be funnier than them. Be like Supercell. Be like, be like Allison. Be like those skinny girls in their, their two-button jeans. And they, they're quiet. And then the boys make a joke and they go, <laughs> do that. <laughs> and I, w- I would blow it every day by second period. I you know, some big loud thing. So it was always a personal challenge for me to be soft. And I had an audition for a show called Breaking News, which none of you have ever seen. It's one of the best. You saw it? It aired on Bravo. Thank you. I, I have to tell you that it was one of the best jobs I've ever had before doing Abbott. It was, I played a news producer for a 24-hour news network. Very much like the show that, um, what's his face? Aaron Sorkin did for HBO, but it was better. And we did it 12 years earlier or something like 15 years earlier. Um, It was when I was, I did the pilot when I found out I was pregnant with twins. Yeah, well, I mean, I was like, why are my clothes getting, why is my wardrobe tight? I don't eat during a pilot. 
And uh, it turns out I was pregnant with twins. So they held production and we went back in and we shot this show that was fantastic. It was Tim Matheson, Clancy Brown. It was a really good cast. Um, uh, and they didn't, it was for, it was for um, the hell was the network that they originally did it for? TNT. It was for TNT. And TNT in that year decided, so this is another thing. It's like you do a project. So I did an entire season of the show. I moved to, after having babies, twin babies, and two kids still in school in, in California, moved to Canada to shoot an entire season of, the show, of a show that at the end of, they were like, we're not going to air any of it because we want a young audience. We want Witchblade audience. And because there was a new president. And they were like, nope burn it so bravo before they had any other programming aired it on a loop they had no other shows they had breaking news 24 hours a day on their network that nobody knew about or watched but the critics saw it so i went to the tcas that year with a show called emerald which was emerald lagasse on a sitcom nicest man in the world and and incredible chef and also Robert Urich's last project. So it was, a, and I met, um, not met, I had met Sherry Shepard when she was doing stand-up, but that's the first thing we did together and she became one of my best friends. So there's reasons that you do things. <laughs> You're funny. Um, but anyway, I was at the TCAs with Emeril and the, the uh, reporters kept coming up saying, what's it like to have done the best show ever on television that's never going to see the light of day, and now you're on this? And I'm like, okay, first of all, they're all right here. Every, <laughs> shut up. But I, I was like, how did you see it? And they said, somebody slipped it to us. And it turned out it was our executive producer <laughs> who went around with a copy of it and sent it to everybody, and it got reviewed. And I got reviews so good it looked like my mother wrote them. Um, I mean, honest to God, it was like, it was a great part for me because it was like, she's a working woman, incredibly smart. But here's the point of this story. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> I went in for the audition and it was an incredible first episode. Um, Ken Olin, who was one of the executive producers, you know, from 30-something, anybody that's old in here, um, he he was in the pilot episode as like the main reporter. And almost towards the end of the episode, he's driving to meet his family. He's going to miss a trip to, to uh, Hawaii. And the family is like mad at him. The wife is mad at him because he's going to miss his trip. Gets to a car accident, dies. No spoiler here because you're never going to see it. It's available nowhere. <laughs> he dies. Nobody was expecting it. It was a great story. And my character who had been working with him for 15 years, maybe had a crush on him, you know, just loved him. Absolutely. I had to do as part of my audition scenes these walk and talks, these Sorkin like walk and talks, you know, rapid fire talking, and a scene where she finds out he died. And it was emotional and it was difficult. And I will tell you that there was a, a, an incredible aspect to that particular audition where I walked in coming from two other jobs and both of them called before I got to this one to say they wanted me. There is nothing that helps an audition like that. <laughs> you just don't care. And I walked in literally still on the phone with my agents going, okay, I have to call you back. And it was good for the character to be on the phone walking into the room anyway. So that was good. But then I did the auditions and then I, I got to that scene. I did it. And Ken Olin said, softer 
and I didn't know what it, whether he meant the because I was playing it soft, but he was like just volume, just a tiny softer, and I did it again just softer, and it I could feel it, I could feel them feel it, it was truth, and it was and I I knew I had the job, I knew it sitting in that room I was like that that was that was good. <laughs> So sometimes playing around with things like that is that's not in your nature that goes against what you initially hear or see is just incredibly powerful. And for me it's that it's literally volume. You're sort of at the pinnacle of the attention and success and the hard work of I everything. Can you believe it? It's after incredible. what we've gone through. Yeah. What are you still learning? That's a great question. Gosh, you're good. I know, that's why I'm here. You're, you're so good. <laughs> still my best friend. Anyway. Um, Yay. <laughs> okay, so right before I, um, we, we did the audition together for Abbott Elementary, I was in a place... Uh, you know, we'd go through these places where, you know, I was taking care of my mother who was quite sick for a lot of years. She had congestive heart failure. She's not doing well. And I spent a lot of time taking care of her. I wasn't booking work. I had, you know, my twins that were just coming out of high school. Things were, had been rough for a while. I was borrowing money from my sister. It's expensive to live here. People think, you guys don't know this. If you're on TV one time, they think you're a millionaire. Any of you have ever had a job? Or your family's like, hey, can I borrow like 100 grand? I'm like, what the? I don't even own my own car. Like, I haven't owned a house here since the divorce from the second husband. So, you know. Um, and, I, and I had a real hard time feeling safe. Things were, things were hard. And I didn't want to go to class because I felt like if I went to class, people would look at me and say, oh, she doesn't know how to act. Or she's, she needs to learn how to act or she doesn't believe in herself or what's she doing in here? It's kind of like the attitude that you feel like when everybody thinks you had one TV job and now your, your life is set, you're famous. You know, we know this. You have a job and then you don't have a job. You have a job and you're unemployed. You, you have a really great job you think is going to go and a new president of a network comes in. So we, we have a... You know, we get up every day as actors with this incredible love for what we do and a, a belief that it's possible and optimism, which goes against the grain of every bit of my, my Sicilian DNA. But I, I make myself be optimistic. So the not wanting to go to class, I was just afraid of the judgment. It had been a long time since I've been in class, and I love to work. I love to work. I love to be in a scene and discover stuff. And it's hard to do when you're not in a project. You know, being on a TV show with a, with a cast, with the incredible chemistry that Abbott has, it is like being in the best repertory company I could ever dream of being in. Everybody is top of their game. So I have it now, but I didn't then. And I was afraid to go to class. And my friend Rosa Blasi said, go to Lee Kilton Smith. Just do the audition class. And I was like, I know how to audition. But then I thought to myself, do I? I'm not booking. 
Maybe I need to go and get a refresher course. And I went to Lee Kilton Smith and I did four weeks, four weeks, maybe three hours each time. And I listened and I and I took it into, incorporated it into what I do with my work, and I did the stuff she said. I didn't go, I don't need to do that. I wrote on a piece of paper, I'm only just beginning. And I put it on my door so I would see it when I left the house. And I remember one of the twins said, what, what is this? And I was like, oh, it's something I'm doing for class to remind myself that even though I'm, you know, I've been in the business a minute, there, you don't know when it's going to come. Cheryl Lee Ralph said that. You don't know if it's going to be 40 or 50 or 60 plus. You don't know. I didn't know it was going to be last year for me. But he was like, I'm only just beginning. I thought we were being robbed and somebody was threatening us. (laughs) Like, I'm coming back. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. But, um, you know, and I put in my book when I was working, one one of many. She says to do one of many. So that you remind yourself when you're doing your work and you're exploring what you're, you know, gonna gonna do in this scene, that it's not do or die. I don't get this. It's gonna be all over for me. It's one of many, and I and I did what she was suggesting in the work. And the very next audition that I had, I had two, two that I really cared about. There was one that I didn't get, and I was like, what's wrong with them? I was brilliant. Like, I knew my work was good. It wasn't a question of I didn't do a good job in this audition. It was fantastic. And I found out they hired Ileana Douglas, and I went, oh, they went a different way, like they like to say. And the other audition was Abbott Elementary. And I booked the job of my life after deciding I needed to go back and refresh what I knew and learn some new things and challenge myself a little bit, and not rely on the stuff I thought I knew, right? That, yeah, that I could learn a few things, and that we continue to learn as we are in this. I watch my castmates on the show. I watch Tyler. Tyler James Williams is incredible. And I watch what he does with the small moments. And I finally got to do a scene with him in one of the last episodes of the second season. And we had such a good time working together because we had seen each other work for a year and a half now and we finally got to play with each other and, and bounce it back and forth like when you're having a real good ball game, you know, or you're having a real good card game. You know, you're just back and forth. And, but I learned from him and watching him how he handles small moments. It's, you never stop learning. You, never, you shouldn't. You never stop learning or you stop growing. So I, I bet you I'm not the first person to say that. I was, I was hack. Sorry. But yeah, I'm learning all the time. You have mentioned throughout tonight, and if you listen to Lisa at any point, anywhere, you'll hear her talk about her family, her kids, her mom. How do you balance... Oh, Now you got me. Um, how do you balance your your life with your family and your life with your big life with all your work? Well, it's. I think it's a lot of what I did was talking about when I did the um, when I was doing stand up, the balancing act of trying to do everything perfect. You're going to fail. You're going to fail. 
because there is no perfect. That's why, like, there's no perfect weight to be. There's no perfect kind of mom to be. You know, I, I love my kids. I, I adore them. I, I expect from them. I make sure they do what I think they should be doing. You know, whether it's going to school. I have one, one girl, three boys. The girl is a brilliant student. I didn't have to push her. She did her work. I never had to say a word. She's getting her PhD. Yay. The but thank you. The boys were a little more challenging. <laughs> and the oldest boy is pursuing what he loves. He's a professional writer, producer, musician, writes music. And uh and the twins are are just coming into their own. I have I I have identical boy twins born on October 11th, the day of the twins' birthday in the parent trap. Ah, it's weird. It's really weird. Nancy Myers put a wuju on me. Um, and the boys are, you know, they're finding themselves. They're, they had to stop going to college because it was the middle of the pandemic. Um, they were home with me when I was, my mom was in my house and I was taking care of her and they were great and they were very helpful. And then one of them moved out cause he was like, I'm tired of not working. I'm going to go get a job. Even though we could have gotten unemployment from the state of California. He's like, I got to go get a job. And I'm like, raise that one. Right. The other one gaming. So <laughs> he's the other one that wants to be a musician, but the one that moved out and got a job, he's in it now. He's to, he was building computers when he was 13 they're weird they're like mirror twins so one is like all math and science and like you know he's kind of aggro and very analytical and the other one is a musician and very emo they're complete opposites but um he got me talking about my kids nobody cares <laughs> nobody cares um no, about how you're balanced how I, do you balance well the thing your- is is that they're all they all require different stuff but i think it's just when you're um when you're a family person and you love them, I had Sunday dinner every night where all the kids would come, whoever still lived in town. I make, you know, a pot of red sauce or whatever, chicken marsala, and we all eat dinner together, including my first husband, who spends the night every Sunday night and we watch 90 Day Fiance. We're, <laughs> we're sick. But he's my, it's like my, he's one of my best friends. One of, one of my best friends. I won't hiss at Sam. Okay, I, no, don't, don't hiss at Sam. Um, and I, I, it's getting help. I mean, there are people that I'm really bad at asking for help. Really, really bad at it. That's, I'm, um, how many years sober now? 18, something like that. 2005. <laughs> Am I asking you? Thank you. I don't like, there's really, it's not even an effort. I, I mean, I miss having nice wine with dinner. I remember which house you were in when that happened. I know. It was <laughs> baby's house, baby's house. Yeah. Up off Beverly Glen. Yeah. 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 So anyway, a lot of years sober. And so I have a lot more energy to do all of these projects that I've talked about doing, plus raising the kids. Now, I will say that the second set of kids that didn't get to be with me in the years of like plentitude, they are now, they just came back from Europe with me. I took them, but uh, all the kids um, and Sam. Um, But they they saw me working all the time and it was harder for them because there was never a moment where I wasn't either actively working on a project or creating something, right? So it was hard because they saw me. I mean, I still went to their school things. I still went to every game they had, every show they had. It wasn't like when I was growing up, nobody came to anything. I went to every single thing they had. But I also was always worried because of money. So they had a different experience of me than the older two had. My, 
No, I'm not going to tell that story. Never mind. I censored myself, and it was good. Don't. No, don't ask. No, what, um, but what? But but I think I I think the balance part comes from. I didn't balance well. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think I balanced well. I disagree. All right, because you tell me then. Because it's about it's about priorities. Because anybody in here, if you're an actor, you know you're 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 constantly waiting. You're constantly on call. How many birthday parties you've missed? Graduations, weddings. You can't go here because you're waiting. I was for afraid th- to go on vacation for this. To I'm like, I can't anything. go. I don't have a job. What if I miss something? But you still, through it all, have prioritized. You, pa- I was there when you packed up two little babies and took them to Canada with you. That's true. I did. You didn't say no to the job. And no. you didn't leave them behind to be no. raised by somebody else. You made it all work. Of course. Well, of course. I'm like, they held production for me. They were three weeks old. They were really, I was still breastfeeding them. They had to come with me. <laughs> But I mean, it, I would say, well, it helped because I had my husband come with me, but he was no help. It was really no help. Uh, thank God for Clancy Brown. Clancy Brown, the actor, picked me up because we only had one car. And Clancy picked me up at my house every day at 4 a.m. to drive me to the studio when we lived up in Vancouver. Um, so he helped. My ex, not so much. But the, but the first husband does. The first husband, Sam, he helped with all four kids and still to this day does. They, the, the second two call him fake dad. And at the beginning of my career, this was a person who believed in me and his soul believed in me and would have done anything for me. This and is told Sam. me told me every single day, I don't know why those guys are getting that job. You're better than anybody. You get, it was like my mother talking. It was like, why, you know how when your mother is like, well, why aren't you starring in that show? I don't even have an agent, Ma. You know, they don't get it. Families don't get it. But he was like, well, I, you could do anything. You should be singing. And I'm like, I have no voice anymore. But uh, it takes somebody believing in you and helping. And, and friends. And friends. Because you and I have a pact. One of us can be down at a time. But not both of us at the same time. And if you need it, I, I come and help. If, I need, if you need to move out of your seven houses that I helped you move out of, I come when you call. I'm like, we're breaking up, come now. I'm like, hang on. And then get in the truck and I come over. And, and you, that's what we do for each other when, when we're performers, right? When we're in this industry, we help each other. Somebody's down, you, could, you come over to their house, you help them, you, you know, sit and cook for them if they're sick, whatever it is. Because a lot of us also live in a town with, that we're not native to. So you're not with your family. I wasn't with my family when I had the, the kids. I was here by myself. No, no family lived around me. But you have to rely. That's why your family, your friends become your family. That's what we do for each other when we are used to being in casts. Because you have to rely on each other when you're a performer, right? Your cast becomes your family. The people that you work this project with are the people that you rely on, both on stage and off stage. You're on location. You know nobody. You're there for three months. You're, you're having miscarriages that happen to me on location. You're having breakups and crying because you find out that your partner's cheating on you. These people become closer to you than people in your own family, you know, siblings you don't really like, right? So this one, I adopted her as a sister. We adopted each other as sisters after your mom passed. I mean, this is who we become for each other. So I think that's how you do it. You balance by relying on Clancy Brown to drive you and and your best friend to help you move and your best friend to help you try to find pictures. You know, you 
That's what you do. This is another kind of two-part question-ish. What advice would you give to fellow actors? And is that advice, do you think, the same now as it was at the beginning of your career? Or after everything you've been through, is it like, no, you know what, I would actually give this advice now? The advice that I have for young people, because people write me, I try to answer when people write me on social media as much as I can. It's a lot more people now, obviously, because this is success of Abbott. But I try to respond to people. And, you know, how do I... People who have, in a town where there's no theater even, or they've never done theater, or they've, they have no experience, but they, I want to be an actor. And what, what they mean by that is I want to be famous and be on TV. And uh, usually... Not I want to be an actor. Because an actor is, go find a stage that's doing a, a project, a, a performance. Audition, learn how to audition. Go to a class and learn how to audition. Get some scenes memorized. Work with other people to do scene work. Actually get on stage and learn all the parts of being an actor. When I came to this town having a, a, a background in theater, I knew how to work. I knew how to get on a stage and work and respect all the other departments because it's not just me. It's all the other people, right? So all of that stuff was ingrained in me as an artist before I came out here and did you know, star work, famous people work. So when people ask me, I tell them, do the work. Do the work. And work on, uh, on the material when you audition to do the stuff I was talking about earlier. Give them three things they're not expecting. Give them at least two extra jokes and something that's not in the script so you surprise them because you'll stand out. And they'll say, I want to write for that person. They're interesting, right? But the other thing is what I talked about earlier, which is always be creating. Always, always be working on something. There's, look, a lot of us, I worked four jobs when I was in college and after college. When I was a mom, I was also waiting tables and doing stand-up. And then I did stand-up and, and was a mom. And then I did, we always are doing more than one thing. So while you're doing that, <clears throat> pardon me, there's no reason why you can't be in front of your computer, even if it's an, an hour a day, a half hour a day, working on your one-person show, a monologue, the beginnings of a play, the beginnings of a movie. Because you, you have the power to shoot movies now. If I could do it when we didn't have the power, when you had to call a friend to come over and, with a camera like this, and you didn't know anybody that had sound equipment, and you didn't know anybody that had lights, because there wasn't a, any such thing as a ring light. There was none of that. If I could do it, anybody in today's world could be doing it. And they are, which is wonderful. People are coming up with their own ideas for, for content that runs on the internet that runs on, I mean, our union is smart enough to now be covering that because that's the, that is this generation, you know? They're not waiting for people to say it's okay for you to do this work or, oh, we don't have room for any more people of color on the network this season. You're just getting out there and shooting entire proof of concepts or entire series and airing it on a platform that, that you, that's free. 
and people come to it. So that's what I would say, create and, and never stop creating. Um, and the thing that I didn't do that I, that I think is a good idea is to keep going to class and keep learning. And I did do it, finally did it, and then uh, figured out how much I was missing and what I could still be learning from it. And it, it's invaluable. It's absolutely invaluable. And you get the right teacher. You know, get, don't get a crackpot. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, because, I mean, people, listen, anywhere that there's a business where there's people that desperately want to be part of it, there's people that are here to take advantage of it. Don't ever pay some business that says, oh, you got to be part of our business. Your kids should be actors. Here, pay $8,000 for headshots. Like anytime somebody's got some fantastical idea of how you're going to be, you know, a big star overnight, it's a lie. Truly. The only guarantee for that is be a Nepo baby. If you're going to arrange to be a Nepo baby, I mean, you got a better shot at it. That's what I would do. And I, and I would have, uh, and I would have, when my marriage, you know, fell apart, um, because my husband came out to me. Which one? First one. <laughs> Smartass. Um, when the when that happened in the middle of me doing this network show that I absolutely loved, and there was a lot of pressure on me. That's the piece of it. And I watched Quinta do it, and I I did what she did, but I didn't do it as well. She's an incredible boss, best boss I've ever had. Fingers in every single piece of the production. Immediately on when it comes time to acting, a wonderful actor. And also uh, doing, there's so much promotion work. It's, it's, there's work if you're not, if you're the star of the show, there's a crap ton of work. If you're a star of a hit show, it is nonstop, 24-7. Always people wanting you to do stuff and big photo shoots and all that stuff. She does it and it's beautiful. I did it and I drank too much. And I started relying on alcohol and I knew I was. And I stopped after that, but because I didn't want to be, um, I didn't want to be for my kids what happened in my household where it was, it became scary. And I didn't want to do that when my kids were in a divorced household. So I, I quit. But in that last year I did. And I, and I think that negatively impacted how I was on the show and how people viewed me. And I, I mean, I wasn't stumbling around drunk or anything like that on <laughs> during shooting. I always went to work. I was always on time. I always did my job. But it can't help but affect your work. So, you know, I think that's, that's a piece of it. If you've got any kind of substance thing going on, it uh, absolutely will impact your work. So get that handled, I would, I would say, to young people. There's a lot of young people that are like, no, it's great when I'm stoned, I'm freer. I'm like, okay, but maybe not every single minute. While you're on stage every day. <laughs> Sorry, did I? Did I? Oh, one one person applauds. The rest of you are like, I'm blazed now. <laughs> you're talking about? I'm three edibles in. What? Up till now, you've said um, that you had were always just moving, creating whatever was showing up in front of you. Do you have any thoughts of actually plans now for after Abbott or during Abbott or like 
what comes next is really what I'm getting at. Are you talking, listen, you know what's hilarious is I met this woman when my mom was in a, like a senior community and she was 94 years old and she had this incredibly illustrious life where she was had had um, helped design something for like fighter planes. Like, and we're talking like in the 40s, like women didn't do stuff. Like she was an engineer. She had this amazing life. And every time I saw her, she would sit down and, and, and start talking to me about some ideas she had. And to where I got to when I would come to my, visit my mom, I would find her and I'd go, so what are we working on now, Doris? What's the next project? What's happening? What are, what are you, you going to do next? 94. But she had plans. She had stuff she had to do still. And I feel like I am never, actors don't retire. We die. Where am I going? I, I never, I, I mean, except for the fact that we're going to buy a house, at least one house together, that's our retirement place, and we invite our friends to come and live with us. And we're going to do that. We're buying a compound. We are. It's you gonna, all might be invited. It's, it's, it's going to be a bunch of tiny houses on a U-shaped cul-de-sac, and I'm calling it Uterville. <laughs> it's all women. And I'm writing a TV show that's about that, and that's true. So don't, I'm copywriting that. Um, I, have, I have projects that I want to do. You know, I yeah, always be creating. Oh, I have a project with you that that we're talking about doing. I've got, um, I've got a game show. I've got a half hour that I did that you know you did you weren't in, but you came out and helped one produce it. I went out and bought the dildo for it. That's true. <laughs> True story. It's not that kind of project, but it had, that had a joke uh, thing for it. Why, why are you telling the people? It's a half-hour comedy. It was very funny. Uh, but now we want to do it animated because I can't do another project that's scripted live action. So we're going to do it animated. I uh, got a movie that I wrote that's a Western. I called it, right now it's just called the Time's Up Western. And it's very female heavy. So I'll see a bunch of you for auditions. Um, I mean, I have a million things that I want to do. That's just part of them. You know, I, I, I still have a slate with 37 projects on it and it's about narrowing them down, Nar narrowing them down is what I was trying to say. But I just, I mean, I love to work. I don't have any plans to do anything but doing this. Hey, you know, dressing up fancy for award shows. Speaking of. Uh-oh. Segway. Uh, we got the uh, we got the Emmys coming up. What's that? Is that a thing? <laughs> it's a it's a little thing. Uh -huh. How how are we feeling about Lisa and Walter being nominated this year? <laughs> it's an honor just to be in the compilation lists. <laughs> um, I uh, you know I'm in a cast of the most amazing people, truly. And I, I'm very proud of the work I did this year. I think hopefully we're going to have a lot more years to explore. I hope that we all go back to work soon. I have a job that I love more than any job I've ever had in my life, and I cannot wait to get back to it. Of course, we have to make sure that everybody is protected. People who can't negotiate their contracts, we have to make sure you all are protected. So um, we'll do it. We'll do it. Um, but I, I, you know... It would be amazing. It would be an incredible, you know, my whole life, if a lot of us as actors, you know, when we start watching award shows, you immediately start putting your speech together. You, know, you start thinking about what you're going to say, what you're not going to say. And for a lot of years, I was like, 
I am going to talk right into the camera of all the guys that broke my heart. I gonna, it was like a revenge speech. I was like, it was so Sicilian. I was like, I can't wait. I'll be like, ha, 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 how you like me now? You know, it was like this whole plan of like, you know, agents that like turned you down and like people that like broke your heart in the business. And I think that if I were ever blessed enough to just be nominated, let alone win, I would just be like, I love this business. I love everybody in this business. I love my life. Everybody who made me who I am, thank you. You know, I, don't th- I think I would just be so entirely grateful. I, just, I'm, 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 I feel so grateful right now and incredibly blessed. I, you were with me on the night of the SAG Awards when our cast won, and I just was out of my mind happy and grateful to you guys, to our peers, because that means more than anything when your peers are like, hey, good job. We like what you do. Yeah. And that it was for an ensemble, which to me means everything. You guys have all been part of casts, right? You know what it is when you're playing with other people. That's, that's the mix, man. There might be one person that gets a star turn or has a lot of great lines, but it, they don't live without you on that stage opposite. So getting recognized for an ensemble, that's just incredibly meaningful to me. Well, hey, Lisa Ann Walters, stage, TV, film actress, writer, author, producer, best executive friend. producer, best friend, <laughs> daughter, mother. Good job. We like what we are doing. Thank you. Lisa Ann Walter, everyone. Thank you for listening to the SAG After Foundation's Conversations podcast. If you appreciated what you heard, please support us with a review or donation and reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SAG After Found. We'd love to hear from you.